Okay, with that, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. We're going to go halfway through uh, Hebrews chapter 10. We are concluding uh, the, the end of a section. More on that will follow. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this, uh, really this great sermon of Hebrews. It is a letter, but, but, but there's the heart of a pastor uh, speaking to the people that he was entrusted to. And Lord, as we come to this passage, as we come to the end of a, a significant section of information in Hebrews, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand what was said, the, the context in which it was said, the implications behind what was said, and, and how it applies to us. Father, ultimately, we pray that you would help us to have greater understanding of the work that Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. Help us to understand this idea of once and for all. It was complete. Your wrath was satisfied by his action on the cross. Father, we pray that you would help us to live our lives in a way uh, that reflects this truth in our life. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says... Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come into the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, 
and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that by your spirit we would understand what is being said here. Lord, that we would draw closer to you. Help us to understand these great truths that are being presented to us in Christ. For those of us that have not received Christ as their Savior, I ask that you would help them to understand the gospel with clarity. And for those of us who have received Jesus as Savior, we ask that you would help us to have clarity of the true freedom that has been offered to us in Christ. We love you, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. All right, today I feel like I should have brought donuts and some balloons to have a big celebration. We are concluding the most difficult part of Hebrews. After today, we'll be done with the difficult part. Um, if, you were to simp- if you were to outline Hebrews in its most basic form, you would outline it, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18, and you would label it information. We've received a ton of information up to this point. Starting next week, things get easier. Because the second part of Hebrews, if we were outlining it, it would be Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 25, would be labeled application. And so we have received a ton of information. We've learned that Jesus is speaking, that God in the past spoke in many ways, through many forms, in a manifold of different ways, but now, in these last days, he's speaking to us in his Son. He then followed that up with showing and demonstrating that Jesus is greater than all things, from angels to, to, to Moses, um, to the priest and the, the temple that was in play during the time of writing ultimately, over the last few chapters, he's been highlighting Jesus' sacrifice, his offering for us, and what he accomplished on the cross. It's greater than anything. And so today, uh, it, it may seem like the author's a little bit of a broken record, but it's been said good teachers repeat themselves, mainly because the students are hard of hearing, and so he wants them to understand the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. In today's passage, we're going to learn about a key theological term, and I want to focus in on that, um, and, and not to get so distracted, or maybe I should say I want to help you understand uh, these 18 verses so that the thrust of these 18 verses sort of bubbles to the surface with clarity. Um, the, the theological term that is critical for us to understand as followers of Christ is the term sanctification. Sanctification has three aspects to it. Uh, Today's passage, the the focus of sanctification could also be called justification. This deals with our legal standing before God. That in the court of heaven, if you've received Christ, regardless of the sins you've committed, the sinner that you are, you, your standing before the Father is that you are sanctified. You are declared righteous. There's a second component to sanctification, and sometimes it's referred to as glorification. 
It could be also referred to as perfect sanctification. And what this idea of sanctification is, is sometime in the future, either when Christ returns and we who are in Christ go with him, or when you die and you go before him, I, I'm already opened up a can of words. I don't want to get, let's just in the future at some time without getting into an argument in my own mind with myself about how it's going to happen, is you will receive a glorified body. Your glorified body will be free of sin. It will be freed of its sin nature. You will no longer sin. You will no longer struggle with the things of the flesh that you presently struggle with. And that's called perfect sanctification or glorification. Now, brass tacks sanctification, where we all are presently, is known as progressive sanctification. There's the then, or there's the there, meaning in heaven, before the Father right now, if you're in Jesus, you legally are sanctified. The work of Jesus on the cross, if you've trusted in him, has been credited to your account. It has been imputed to your account. You stand justified before the Father. One day we know that we'll no longer be in these bodies and we'll be glorified and we will no longer have to struggle with our sin nature. But progressive sanctification deals with the, until that point, we have this war happening. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. You have this new nature, but you have a roommate, your old nature, the flesh, and they hate each other and they're at war with one another and you are in the midst of this battle whether you recognize it or not. If you're not in Christ, you don't even know it. You're just an enemy of God and you're living your life. However, it's actually pretty simple then. Then you become a Christian and you have this tug of war happening trying to figure out how life is supposed to happen. Uh, Matt Chandler is a, a very uh, well-known um, pastor and he has a book called Explicit Gospel and he shares about a time in his book when he went to his hometown. Well, I'll just read what he says here. He says, when I was done preaching, I decided to hop in my car and drive 20 minutes to the town in which I grew up and look at the houses that I remembered from back then. As I drove into town, I passed by a field where I once got in a fist fight with a kid named Sean. It was not a fair fight, and I did some shady, dark things in that fight. I completely humiliated him in front of a large crowd of people. Then I drove past my first house and I thought of all the wicked things I had done in that house. I passed by a friend's house where once at a party I did some of the most shameful, horrific things that I'd ever done. Afterward, on the drive back to the conference, I was overwhelmed with the guilt and shame of the wickedness that I had done in that city prior to knowing Jesus Christ. I could hear the whispers in my heart, you call yourself a man of God? Are you going to stand in front of these guys and tell them to be men of God after all you've done? In the middle of all that guilt and shame, I began to be reminded by the scriptures that the old Matt Chandler is dead. The Matt Chandler who did those things, the Matt Chandler who sinned in those ways was nailed to that cross with Jesus Christ. And all his sins, past, present, and future, were paid for in full on the cross of Jesus Christ. I have been sanctified once and for all. He remembers my sins no more. 
And I no longer need to feel shame for those things because those things have been completely atoned for. I don't know if you've ever been there with those feelings, but I know that I have. As a young Christian wrestling with my nature and trying to figure out this whole Christianity wasn't working out for me, I, I, somewhere deep within me, after I've grown, I recognized that, that how I was supposed to be living wasn't working itself out in my life, and I struggled with that. I, I think of the, for those of you that remember back to the Matthew study, there was this scene, or if you just know the story, there's a scene of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate recognizes that Jesus is innocent. <laughs> But he doesn't know how he's going to get out of this predicament. So he comes up with an idea. He remembers that year after year, there's always this scapegoat. They would let somebody go free. So he said, the way I'll do this, I'll take the most hardened criminal. So they had this man named Barabbas. Now, Barabbas, we know, was a murderer. He was hated by the people. And he aligns Barabbas out before the people. And he says, who do you want me to let go? And they start screaming, Barabbas, 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 let him go. Pontius Pilate's, he's at a loss. He's like, this totally backfired. I mean, this guy's a total murderer, and we're about to release him. And in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, I love this scene. They, they make this guy look out just to be wicked. He, he, you can see his teeth are all nasty. His hair's kind of, he just looks like a wild, crazy guy. And he's hearing the chanting. And he's like, this is ridiculous. They're going to let me know. Like, he recognizes what a horrible guy he is. And he's like, they're going to let me go and execute this guy. And in the movie, when it's all said and done, the guy like kind of skips away like, I'm out of here before they change their mind. Like, this is a glorious day for me. I'm totally guilty and they're letting me free. Well, that's all of us. I shared about my buddy's church named Barabbas Road Church out of La Jolla. And their little slogan is, I am Barabbas. Because the reality is we're all sinners. If you've received Christ as Savior, you're just a saved sinner. You're not a sinless uh, Christian. You are a sinner that's been saved, and you're a sinner that's saved now. And so this idea of sanctification is critical. We need to understand why are we saved, what are the implications of it. And in this passage, if you'll kind of skipping ahead, giving you the key verses, in verse 10, We read, by this will, we have been sanctified. So by this will, if we were to go back up to verse 9, we see the quotation that's Jesus being quoted, Behold, I have come to do your will. So he's speaking of doing the will of the Father. The will of the Father was Jesus going to the cross. Father, this cup could pass from me, let it pass. But if not, not my will, but your will be done. So he says here in verse 10, by this will, Jesus' willingness to go to the cross we have been sanctified there's that key word legal standing before the father we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of jesus christ once and for all down to verse 14 by this one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified the very end verse 18 the sort of the final push the crescendo of the whole argument Really, I would suggest for the whole of of Hebrews up to this point, 
Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. And from that point at verse 19, there's a therefore. And he's going to transition to application. Therefore, as a result of all of these things I've said, we need to move forward. Sanctification. 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 If you've received Jesus as your Savior, legally you've been set free. Your standing before the Father is innocent and it makes no sense. It reminds me of the court scene of the one guy who we all knew was guilty, not to start an argument, but he was acquitted. We've all been acquitted. None of us are innocent. We're all guilty, and yet our standing before God is that we're innocent. So as we work through this passage, back to verse 1. Some of this is going to sound like stuff that we've already covered. The author is making his point. And he begins, for the law, we're talking about the Mosaic law, the 613 commands of the Old Testament. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. So he's saying that the law was a, was a foreshadowing. It was a pattern of the actual in heaven, the kingdom there, not, not, not the actual. It pointed to those things. It, it should have led the followers to those things. He says, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So he's rehashing the the inadequacy, the insufficiency, the inability of the law. That year by year, they would go and they would make these sacrifices. And no matter how many times you did it, It says, it could never make perfect those who draw near. Moving on to verse 11, it says, Otherwise, continuing with this thought, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. So he kind of says, if the the Mosaic system of making offerings and these sacrifices, if they were sufficient, a worshiper would go to the temple or the tabernacle. They would, they would sacrifice their, their cow or their goat. They would make this sacrifice. They would be atoned for their sins. They would go away and they would never have to repeat it. But he says this happens year after year and we'll see that the priests are doing it day after day that they're, they're continually having to go back. If it was sufficient, it would be done with. They would go once and it would be over. But it wasn't. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices, there there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the purpose of the law, through these sacrifices, through all the blood, was to show the worshipers that their sin had consequences. Ideally, the law would humble them. Ideally, the law would show them that they had a need of something greater that the law foreshadowed. Last week, somebody came up to me after the service and said, well, I have some questions about the law. Because last week, it talked about, we talked about that the the work on the cross of Christ, it sort of had retroactive effect on the Old Testament believers. They looked forward by faith to the cross 
And Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient because naturally the Hebrew worshipers would have some questions. Well, what about my, my grandma so-and-so that she died before Jesus came? She loved the Lord. And the author kind of makes the case, like, listen, Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient for them. So then the, the, heart, the, the issue, like, how can I say that the law is uh, insufficient or useless? And it's a really good question because, well, first off, the Hebrews says that. But what we need to sort of distinguish in our minds when we're talking about the law, the law in its most ideal, um, as it was uh, set up by God to do, it was, to, like I said, to, to the person of faith to go to recognize, to look to the greater temple, to look to the Messiah uh, with what information they had to, by faith, Make these sacrifices, longing for the day when their sins would be atoned for. It would humble them. But what had happened is they had taken the law and they had manipulated it and they had turned it into a system of do's and don'ts, a system of check these boxes, and if you do what the rabbis say about the law, then you can make yourself good. The Apostle Paul is a a case in point. In Philippians, I think it's chapter 3, When he talks about his past life, he says, of the Jews, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, According to the law, I was zealous. Or he says, I was blameless. So he says, when he looks back on his past life, when he was a Pharisee, when he was going through all of the sacrifices and all of the rituals, he, in that mind, thought that he was sinless before God because he had attained the law perfectly. And he acknowledges in that passage that that was so foolish of him. He says all of that stuff was rubbish. He, the word he uses is dung for valley center people. He says that's a manure pile in the backyard. This religiousness, it doesn't save you. In Galatians, he shows the contrast. He says the whole purpose of the law is that as a tutor, it's a school teacher to lead the individual to Christ, to expose how desperate you are for something greater than yourself to intervene to save you because you can't do it. And so, yes, the law is good if used correctly. But the issue that he's dealing with is that the law had been misused. And he's making this case to them that the law can't save you. The law can only point you to the one who can. So now we come to verse 5. I'm trying to figure out how to handle verses 5 through 7. I think the best way to handle them is not to read them, but to explain what's happening. Because in verses 8 through 10, everything that's said in verses 5 through 7 is going to be repeated. Um, So in verse 5 we read, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, so now he's speaking about Christ, and he's going to quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. So in essence, verses 5 through 7, he's just quoting Psalm 40. Now, if you quickly go back to, you don't have to do this, but if you're one of the types that's like, oh, I want to go back to Psalm 40 and see the context of what happens, you're going to see sort of the the wording's going to be significantly different. And the reason that the wording is significantly different is because the Bibles that you have in your hands are a direct translation from the Hebrew Scriptures. What they had was the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So there's sort of variances in how it sounds. But so he reads this and he says, this is what Jesus said, and he quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Now, in verse 8, he's going to explain it. In verse 8, he says, 
after saying above, now he's going to read it. It's the same if you were to go back to verse 5, sacrifice and offerings, sacrifice and offerings. It's all sort of aligned. Sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. Now, following that quote, there's in the New American Standard, there is a, uh, a parenthetical statement. I don't know how the other translations handle it. But now the author of Hebrews is going to comment on that section. And what he says about these burnt offerings that the Lord takes no pleasure in, he makes a comment that these sacrifices and offerings that were being made, they were being made, they were, which are being offered according to the law. So the sacrifice, that's exactly what the law asked them to do. Verse 9, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. And now we're going to stop here. So he quotes a little bit more. So he's saying that the father doesn't take pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings. But what we're going to see is that there is a pleasure in the idea of Jesus' obedience of doing the will of the Father. Without spending too much time here, I, for those of you who are parents, it's to see your child sin and do something wrong and for you to have to point it out to them and for you to sort of uh, enforce um, a response of offering and sacrifice the I'm sorry for doing this. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to go tell Johnny that I'm sorry for punching him in the back or whatever whatever it is. Even if the child does this on their own, if you're observing it, it's like, oh, I need to get involved and do something. Oh, there's Johnny. He just punched Sammy. And now I got like, but then you say, oh, look at Johnny. I didn't have to get involved. He goes over to Sammy. He says, I'm really sorry for punching you. Hey, dad, I punched Sammy and I, you need to punish me. You're like, oh man, look at that. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. But how much better is it for a parent when you see Johnny, who you know doesn't like Sammy, instead of punching Sammy, he says, hey, why don't we go play together? Oh, oh, oh. how much greater joy does that bring you as a parent? Not that there's remorse following a sinful action, but that there's obedience on their own. This is kind of the idea because what were the offerings and sacrifices? This is the people over and over again killing an animal because of their sin. So no matter how you slice it, somebody's dying for sin, which meant that there was sin. Now Jesus comes, did he go to the cross for his sin? No. Did he have sin? No. He went to the cross out of obedience to the Father's will, which is a totally different sort of pleasure. And then he says, following this in verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will. Now he inserts commentary. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. What are we talking about? We're talking about covenants. He takes away the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, in order to establish the second, the new covenant. And he says, by faith, this will, I already pointed out, this is the will of Jesus, obediently following the Father's will and going to the cross. By Jesus' action, by the gospel, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Legally, a transaction occurred 
that when you believed upon Christ's work before the Father, your legal status changed to innocent. Your guilty is all get up. But before the Father, based on Christ's work on the cross, you're declared innocent. It's a huge thing. Now, verse 11. Every priest... It's going back to comparing and contrasting these two priests. Not without, not trying to bring up a confusing subject of Melchizedek, but we have two priests, or two orders of priests. We have the Levitical priest, we have the Melchizedek priesthood. The priesthood we're talking about is the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices under the Mosaic system. We have Jesus that is of a different order altogether of the order of Melchizedek. And so as he contrasts them, he points to the priests and their sacrifices We just read through the offering of the body of Jesus. Once and for all, we've been sanctified. Now the other priest, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The Levitical priest could be there 24-7 forever and their sacrificial system could never accomplish taking away the sins of humanity. It's impossible. They can shove them under the carpet, shove them under the carpet, shove them under the carpet, but they're not really dealt with. But in verse 12, he, that's Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for the sins of all time, did what? He's going to quote from Psalm 110, verse 1 again. He's already said this. The Levitical priesthood of the tabernacle, there were no seats in there. The work was never done. They were always doing the sacrifices. Jesus makes his sacrifice. He goes up to the tabernacle in heaven and he sits. All the work's done. There's nothing more to do. The work is complete. Or as Jesus said with one word on the cross, teletestai, it is or finished. We translate it as finished, but all he said was finished. And that word echoed across Jerusalem, finished. The work was done. The offering was made. There's nothing more for him to do other than to sit at the right hand of God. Quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1. Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool of his feet. Still quoting Psalm 110. For by one offering, he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, you know, he's going to quote from Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and their, on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's finished. At verse 18, he makes his point. Everything that he's made, that Jesus is so great, the greatest thing that he ever did was he went to the cross and he made a sacrifice and there's nothing greater that anybody else could do. No priest, no law, no government. He paid for the sins of the world once and for all, period. There's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing else you can do. All you can do is to respond by faith or your natural default to reject, period. It's finished. And from this point in verse 19, there's a huge therefore. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter in the holy place by the blood of Jesus, who could enter? Nobody can enter the holy place. Not by the Levitical priesthood. But when Jesus makes his payment, he brings us all along. 
beautiful, but we're going to get to that next week. So some thoughts. When I reflect on Hebrews, when I look at all that we've covered up to this point, 10 chapters, 18 verses, there's a lot of information. Followed by application of a couple chapters. When I look at Ephesians, it's the same way. Half of it is doctrine. The other half is application. When I look at Romans, there's 11 chapters of information followed by a couple chapters of application. I can't help but to think that God cares about our minds and what we think and what we understand about him. You can do application all day long. You can go serve God. But if it's not grounded in correct theology and correct understanding, you can get led astray really quickly. So God wants us to understand what he's revealed to us about himself. And today in particular, the issue that he wants us to understand is this offering that he made. What do we know about Jesus' work on the cross? His cross was once and for all. His sacrifice was sufficient. Through responding to the gospel in belief, we're told that you're sealed by the Spirit. At that moment, you're legally declared innocent before God. Positionally, you are sanctified or justified. You know, there's that little slogan, just as if I'd never sinned. I don't really like that one because you have sinned and you are a sinner and you will continue to to sin and it's not fair, it doesn't make sense. But God says, based on the work on the cross, if you believe in him, that work is incredited to your account. It's not fair. It's totally not fair. We're always complaining about fairness. This is the most unfair transaction in the history of, of existence. That God would step out of heaven, live a perfect life, and then he would be executed as a criminal for my sins, for your sins. And then in responding to that, suddenly all of his righteousness is banked in my bank in heaven. And before the Father, I'm declared innocent. One day we'll be glorified in our new bodies. One day glorification will happen. We will be perfectly sanctified. But until that day, we struggle. Practically speaking, this is perfect or progressive sanctification. I um, I look back at my early Christian years, and I I so wish I had understanding back then. I can't blame anybody other than myself. I I mean, it takes time to mature. I wasn't in a situation to be discipled, to be grown, but it it happened with time. When I look back at that time at SEAL Team 3, when I was trying to live out this, this, the military life with becoming a Christian, my life was a mess. Like I genuinely thought I was, I mean, I was a Christian at that time. Like there's no question I was a Christian. But my life, it was like not at all. Like other than when I walked through the doors of church on Sundays when I was going, When I walked through the doors, everything was in order. But from that point, it was craziness. And it went on for a couple years. And I remember kind of having a breaking point, thinking that I was a total hypocrite 
because something within me told me that the way I was living, it didn't reflect what God wanted from me or, or how I was supposed to be living. I couldn't articulate it. But the idea in my mind is that I was a hypocrite. And I finally sort of reached a point where I'm like, well, I'm being a hypocrite. I have to quit this. I can't go on saying I'm a Christian because I'm a total hypocrite. In hindsight, when I look back, I wasn't being a hypocrite. I was an immature Christian struggling with my new life in Christ because I'd lived in the flesh for so long. And the Spirit of God was convicting me. I would go and do things, and I just oh, it felt worse than before. So I tried to do it more to try to like get over that hump. But the reality is what was happening is this is the sanctification process. God's like, I have a hold of you. You have my spirit within you. You need to move in this direction. I'm not going to let you go. We don't have a lot of time right now. So I want to give you some homework assignment. I'm going to sort of uh, r- r- please write down, study this week, Romans chapter 7, verse 21 through Romans chapter 8, verse 15. The other homework is Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. But, but quickly, I'm going to sort of open up the floodgates of, the, of uh, the fire hydrant and sort of give you some seminary where you're trying to take a sip of water out of a fire hydrant because these thoughts are critical. First, if you haven't accepted Christ, salvation comes through belief, period. You are exposed to the gospel, you respond, and when you respond by belief... In that moment, we're told that the Spirit of God seals you until the day day of redemption. Uh, Positionally before the Father, you've been justified. For those of us who've done that, you might not feel like that's the case because of how you're living, but you're in good company. So if you'll turn with me to Romans 7, I don't have time to unpack this, but I want to point out a few things about Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through chapter 8, verse 15. Without reading it, this is the passage that some of us are familiar with. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the Apostle Paul who's written all kinds of Bible. Like, God has used this man to pen Scripture. He's writing this as he's presently writing Scripture in one of the most profound books in the New Testament. And he says, the things that I want to do are over here. I love those things. I want to do those things. Everything about me testifies that those are the things that I want to do. But I'm not doing them. And in my mind, everything over here, these are the things that I shouldn't be doing that I don't want to do. I know I shouldn't be doing those things. Those are the ones I do. And he goes about this great struggle within. And he's talking about this dual nature that we have as Christians. If you follow Christ, you go from having now your flesh to the Spirit of God residing within you. And there's a war between these two roommates and your vessel of a body. You're often the one in the midst of their tug of war. He talked to verse 14, wretched man that I am, who will set me from this body of death? Thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ our Lord, So then on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he leads into this great understanding that the Christian life happens by yielding your life to the Spirit of God and through the Spirit of God that, with, that is within you as a believer, that he will guide you and help you and he will move you towards Christ-likeness. But you're going to have to study it on your own because I'm shy on time. The next thing that we need to understand is if you'll turn a couple chapters to the, fo- to, to the front in Romans chapter 5. First and foremost, we need to understand that our righteousness, our justification, our sanctification positionally is not based on our own work. We continually fall back into the trap of thinking that it's our life and our works that matter to God. And they do to a certain extent, but but for salvation, you have nothing to offer. We need to understand that our position before God, our hope in him is totally and completely based on what Jesus did for us. And in Romans chapter 5, this concept of imputing or uh, imputation, we need to understand this. Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. And he goes on to build this case. So you need to understand that you're a sinner, not because you've necessarily committed a sin in your life. You weren't born this innocent, sweet, beautiful baby, which you were all beautiful babies. All babies are just the most, like of all animal, like of everything. Like, I, probably not a snake. That's the only thing. That, baby snakes probably like uh, still like just take care of them. I, but you were born this beautiful little baby. And at some point, whether it was an hour or maybe a year, at some point you sinned for your first time. And it's easy for us to think in our minds that that first sin is the event that made you a sinner. But that's not the case at all. You made that first sin because you were born a sinner. That back in creation, when Adam and Eve sinned, genetically something changed. The in the human race, the stream of life was contaminated with sin. Death entered the world. And in Romans 5, 12 through 21, he makes his case through one man, sin entered the world. But then he says through another. I don't have much time. I want to figure out where to re-enter. Verse 18. So then... As though one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, this is Jesus' one offering on the cross. Once and for all, there resulted in what? Justification. This is sanctification. There resulted in justification of life to all men. For as though the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. This is the whole purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to manifest sin within us, to expose the sin that's raging like a fire within us so that we would understand how desperate we are for Jesus. 
the law came in that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's beautiful. So Hebrews has taught us what Jesus has done for us, and the question that begs is, how then do we live now in light of this? And that's what the rest of Hebrews is going to answer. But Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what he said is that we have been purchased with a price. Therefore, let us glorify God with our bodies. And this is what the author of Hebrews is going to push us toward. Christ paid it all for us. What we saying just before this, this time. All to him I owe. And Father, we do thank you for this great truth of sanctification. It's a huge theological legal term. But in its simplest form, we come like the man in the pages of the Bible. It's a, I was blind, but now I see. I understand how great my sin is. I know how great my need is for something to redeem me. And so, Father, I come before you and I thank you that Jesus stepped out of heaven. He became man. He lived this perfect life and that he would go to the cross without sin. And that he would die in my place, that he would be my substitute. I thank you, Lord, that you so moved in my life and our lives that we came to a place to respond to you, that we receive this great gift and we received your mercy, that we were moved from death in Adam to life in Christ, that our legal standing before you, that we've been declared sanctified, justified, innocent. Lord, we ask that you would help this reality of this legal standing to take root in our hearts, that we would be transformed by this truth, that as we move forward in our lives, trying to glorify you with our bodies, that you would help us not to fall into the trap of works, but that our works would be the manifestation of worship for understanding what you have done for us. We thank you, Lord, that you did it all. And it's all to you we owe. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.